Hello, and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of the entire Bible, led by pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. Let's join Mike as he focuses on chapter 10 in our study of the New Testament Gospel of John. We have a few moments before we begin, so let's get our Bibles and notebooks and prepare our hearts and minds to receive the Word of the Lord. bottom line is in this world that if we're born once we will die twice if we're born once the natural way like everybody else says you're born into this world you come out screaming and kicking and stuff and you live your life if you're just born of the flesh born of a woman then we will face physical death someday everybody it's like taxes and death right everybody faces that but then after that physical death there come a point when the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ has only been born once, they will face spiritual death. And spiritual death is described in the Bible as being eternally separated from God. In other words, God's in heaven, what's the farthest place away? Hell. Okay? But if a person is born twice, they will only die once. A person who's born twice, the first time born of a wound, born in the natural way like we all are, But then later on, when we come to the realization that we're sinners, most of us don't have to study too hard to figure that out, okay? One good look in the mirror. Think back to your day or your last decade. We'll all figure that out. We figure out that we're sinners. When we figure out that we're a sinner, that we're going to die and go to hell unless we accept Jesus Christ. When we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, say, Lord, come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. He comes into our life, but the Holy Spirit comes into us, and we're born again of the Spirit. That's the second birth I'm talking about. But if a person is born twice, sure, they will face physical death at some point unless the rapture comes to get us. But they will not face spiritual death after that because they're born again of the Spirit. The minute we step from this life, we step in the presence of God and we're with Him forever in heaven. And it's a crazy thing to understand that we have the choice in that. That's actually what this life is really all about, is making that choice. We're given an opportunity to do just that. And he leaves that responsibility in our hands, even though he stacks the information in his own favor. Whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, verses 11 through 18, as we progress through the chapter a little more, we see Jesus as the good shepherd. This is obviously in contrast to the bad shepherds that he's been talking to, okay? Because they've been bad shepherds, they're hirelings, and he'll describe what that is. In verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The good shepherd giving his life, it's a sacrificial way of approaching life. It's not about pleasing yourself all the time. It's about ministering to somebody else. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He ministers to us by saving us. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, here the prophet writes, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Jesus is a good shepherd. He cares about the sheep. Jesus cares about you. He loves you all, each one of you individually, so much. Jesus gives, from our perspective, gave his life looking back. And we read in John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love is no man than this, 
than a man will lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. He looks upon our plight. He sees that we are hopelessly condemned to hell in and of ourselves. He says the only way they can be saved is if I die in their place. And he dies for each one of us. The essence of the gospel is not what Jesus will do for us. It's what he's already done. Jesus has already completed that work on the cross. Next chapter again, Jesus will tell us in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God has not life. Verse 12 says, But he is a hireling and not the shepherd. Talking about those that he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and doesn't care about the sheep. Interesting, Jesus is in one of these kind of like head-banging, in-your-face kind of confrontations with the religious people. He's already called them thieves and robbers. Now he just right in their face says, you're a hireling. You don't care about the sheep. That's a hard thing. I was in a meeting one time with a group of pastors, and one of the pastors made it a point, told the group, that as long as there's a paycheck there, he'll be there. But the minute the paycheck is gone, he's gone. What that told me was that he was a hireling. All he cared about was the paycheck. He didn't care about the sheep. It didn't matter what was going on with them. In that moment, I realized that guy's not a pastor. That guy's not a shepherd. I lost all respect for that person. And that's exactly who Jesus is talking about. A good shepherd, he's there to protect the flock. He's got his group of sheep, and when he sees a wolf coming, he doesn't go, oh no, and beat feet or grab the littlest one and chuck him out in front of the wolf, you know, like a distraction. Okay, you know. No. When he sees the wolf coming, it's like, it's on. And he gets his staff, and he gets his rod, and it's like, yeah, go after him. And he's going to beat that wolf away, or he's going to die trying. And it's really interesting, because it's like the owner of a business. A lot of times the owner of a business, they're very conscientious. They work hard, they do all kinds of cool stuff, but they hire people sometimes that don't have the same heart, that don't have maybe a service mentality or work ethic. They start doing stuff because it's not their business. What do they care? It's just a paycheck. And that really comes through when you talk to people. In those days, typically, the head of a household would have livestock, sheep and goats and that kind of stuff. And when he would go out with the sheep, he would take really good care of them because that's his wealth. By the way, they didn't eat the sheep every day like, oh, let's go have lamb chops. They had sheep, and they would try to encourage the sheep to multiply, but they didn't eat the sheep. They milked them for the milk, and so they sold milk and cheese and that kind of stuff, sheared them, and used the wool, and that's how they made their money. They didn't actually, quote-unquote, eat the sheep. See, when I think about having cattle, my first thought is hamburger. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. But they didn't do that. And so the owner oftentimes would start off, but then his kids were old enough, he'd send the kids out to shepherd the sheep. And their job, just because they knew it was part of their, it would be their inheritance and all that, so they had an interest, they would always kind of take care of the sheep. But sometimes things got too big or things didn't work out, and they would hire men to be shepherds. And those are the guys you're talking about, that they don't have a vested interest or they weren't conscientious. And when they saw a wolf coming, it's like, oh no, you know, and they would run away. Let the wolf do whatever it wanted to do to the flock. In those days, they counted the sheep. You started off with 24 sheep. At the beginning of the day, you walk in at the end of the day, and there's only 23 sheep. The owner's going to go, where's that missing lamb? 
if a, like a wolf or predator got a hold of it, he had to chase it down and tear it out of its mouth. And even if he brought back parts of the carcass, they had to bring back proof, like the ears or parts of the leg or the hoof or the tail or something. And they would bring it back. So it was taken by a wolf, and I tried. And the fact that he's got parts of it back meant that he really did try. But if you couldn't bring it back, then he was responsible for the price of that lamb. He had to pay it back. If employees at stores were responsible for theft from the stores, it would be a whole different system around here, i tell you what. They'd be like, man, shoppers to come in and get dogpiled, beat up, and thrown out the window so they can figure out what's going on. That's what they're talking about. If they're there for their own self-interests, when danger comes or their interests are no longer served, then they split. That's what hirelings do. It's interesting because there's a number of scriptures in the Bible that talk about this. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 2, it says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? God's watching. I don't know about you guys, but my heart's been breaking this week along with my family and a lot of other people watching the persecution that's happening in Iraq to the Christians. And we're hearing horrible, horrible things. This morning as we're praying about this immense prayer, one of the first comments that came out of one guy's mouth was, you know what? As much as this frustrated me, as much as it grieves me, I'm thinking, people have got to see this. Who's watching? Because the news is turning a blind eye to it. And then he said, but God is watching. God is fully aware of what's going on, and God's going to take care of this in the end. Even so, with the hireling shepherds that are out there in different places that aren't feeding the flock, that aren't doing what God's called them to do. Also in Ezekiel chapter 34, from verse 8 forward, it says, As I live, saith the Lord God, Surely because my flock became a prey, my flock became meat to every beast of the field. Because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherds search for my flock. But the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. Therefore, O you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. And I will cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouth, that they may not be meat for them any more. False shepherds don't care about the welfare of the sheep. They only care about themselves, but they're going to be held accountable. That's why James writes in James 3.1, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Jesus is the ultimate good shepherd. He's the ultimate role model. He's the ultimate good example. But it's interesting because the Bible also holds up an example of the ultimate bad shepherd speaking of the Antichrist. In the book of Zechariah, he describes the foolish shepherd, the hireling. In so doing, he describes this foolish or bad shepherd. He also describes the Antichrist. In Zechariah chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, For lo, I raise up a shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off. Neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that which stands still, but he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaves the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. This is a, a warning to bad shepherds, but it's also a description of the Antichrist. And so when you build a composite picture from the Bible, this is one of those scriptures that's used that, hey, the Antichrist is going to have a withered arm or a blind eye. But Paul not only demonstrates, but he describes what a good under-shepherd looks like. In Acts chapter 20, because I want to end this on a negative note, uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 27 and 28, 
For I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. One of the things that kind of keeps me personally on the straight and narrow is as much as I identify with you guys as our church and my fellowship and all those kinds of things, I understand that you are God's flock, that you are his precious lambs, and that I am simply an under-shepherd because just like Paul says there, which he has purchased with his own blood. I haven't died for you, but Jesus sure did. And he will hold me accountable for you. And that drives me like, okay, I'll read it clear. You know, I'll be good. And Jesus is the ultimate good shepherd. In fact, he says again in verse 14, As I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. Again, he declares he's the good shepherd, but he says those words, I know my sheep, and they know me. That's important. This is the essence of a personal relationship. It's not one-sided. I can say that I know Barack Obama, but I know him by name, I know him by sight, but we don't golf together. We don't hang out and stuff. He doesn't call me for counsel. I wish he would. We're not friends like that. We don't know each other like that. We don't have a personal relationship. But with Jesus, I do have a personal relationship because I know him and he knows me. Okay, that's important. To have a personal relationship, both parties have to know each other. We have this uh, interesting warning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. It says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, in those last days, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So it's important that we know Jesus, but it's equally as important that Jesus knows us, that we have that one-on-one personal relationship with him. And it's interesting because between verses 14 and 15, that word know or knoweth is used four different times. And in the Greek language, that word is gnosko. The Greek language has different words for to know something. You can know something in an academic sense, like by you read a book, and you know how to build a rocket. So you can read a book, and you can become a rocket scientist. Now, that doesn't mean that you actually know how to really make a rocket and it would actually fly. So you know by revelation, which is oedis. But the word that's being used here in our passage this evening is the word gnosko. That means to know personally. That means to know intimately, to know by experience. That someone has actually built rockets and actually flew somewhere. And Jesus is saying, you can't just know me in an academic sense. You can't just know me in a philosophical way, in a distant relationship like the way I know Barack Obama. It's, no, we need to know each other. We need to sit down and have fellowship together and have communion together. And I know how many hairs are on your head. I know what's in your heart. I know your thoughts. And I want you to know mine. That's what Bible study is really all about, is we get to know the one who created us. We get to know the one who saved us. We learn what he likes. We learn what he dislikes. We learn how he reacts in certain situations. We learn what he expects of us as Christians. And like he's been talking about, and as his sheep, we recognize his voice. When he says, let's go this way, we go that way, we follow him. The shepherd says, okay, let's go this way. And, and all the sheep start going that way, and the shepherds are going that way. And there's always one line kind of going, no, I'm not going that way. Bah, see ya. The other way. That's a rebellious lamb. 
And God knows how to deal with rebellious lambs. But what about the one that just never heard his voice to begin with? Just oblivious, whatever, wanders off. We need to know his voice because he knows us. We need to know him personally and intimately. Now, verse 15, as the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and lay down my life for the sheep. There could almost be like a comment instead of a period there between verses 14 and 15, because it's one kind of continuous statement. The Father knows me, and I know the Father. I mean, I'm in communion and fellowship with the Father. How well does Jesus know the Father? I bet it was pretty good. How well does the Father know Jesus? And likewise, there's that close, intimate, they're on the same page, everything. And then he says, and I lay down my life for my sheep. Now, why does it go from them knowing each other to Jesus dying, to Jesus laying down his life? Because, as it says in John 15, 13, greater love is no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. What he's saying is, is that he knows the Father, and the Father's will is that I lay down my life. <laughs> he's going to do the will of the Father, because that's what Jesus always does. And then we look at verse 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Now the fold he's talking about is the fold of Judaism. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. I love this, because guess who he's talking about? He's talking about you guys. He's talking about all of us collectively, the church, the non-Jews, the Gentiles. Gentile is not a bad word, by the way. In a biblical sense, if you're Jewish, you're Jewish. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. And we are the other fold. We are the other group that's being spoken of here. And what I like is, to the chagrin of many Jews, because many Jews traditionally think that all the Gentiles, non-Jews are good for, is to fuel the fires of hell. That's our purpose, to keep hell nice and hot. But all through the Old Testament, there's these different passages that declare that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are all part of God's plan from the beginning. And I like that again, he's talking about us. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 and 7, he says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold your hand, and will keep you, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, and to bring out the prisoners from the prison, then that sit in darkness out of the prison house. We were part of God's plan of redemption from the beginning. God started out using the Jews to provoke the Gentiles to jealousy, but now it's kind of been reversed a little bit because of the fact that the Jews rejected the Messiah. And now God is using the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy. You read Romans chapter 11 and see all that. Again, we are part of the plan of redemption. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. Now, verse 17, Therefore does my Father love me because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. Jesus affirms the fact that the Father approves of what Jesus is saying and doing. Now, we know that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious people, are pretty fed up with Jesus. They want to take him out and they want to kill him. They're extremely angry. They're displeased with Jesus. But God the Father is pleased. Why? Because Jesus is doing exactly what God the Father wants. He's proclaiming the truth. He's healing the lame and the blind and all those other guys. And in the end of all that, he's going to die on the cross, according to the Father's will, that we could all have fellowship with him forever in heaven. He's going to provide a way for us. But the Father affirmed his love for Jesus by voicing it. When Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straight away out of the water, and lo, 
the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Wouldn't you like that to happen when you get baptized? Come out of the water and boom, the heavens open up. And God says, Good job! (laughs) Big thumbs up. (laughs) Jesus got that. That acknowledgement from the Father. Again, at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God affirms. When Jesus says that God the Father loves him, part of that is ascribed to the fact that Jesus is being obedient to what God the Father said to do. In other words, he's laying an example for us. The way that we demonstrate, the way that we declare our love for God is by being obedient to his word. Because that's what Jesus did. Every time God spoke like that, it's because Jesus had just done something that was in accordance with the will and the word of God. If you want to please God, then be obedient to the word of God. The Father loves Jesus because Jesus, out of obedience, did the will of the Father. He laid down his own life. Jesus would declare in John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 21, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. He that loves me should be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself. I will make myself real to him. Now the last verse for the night, verse 18 Jesus declares, no man takes it from me, meaning his life, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. The way things were set up, Jesus allowed himself to be killed. But they didn't take his life from him. He gave his life up. He allowed it. Interesting, historically, if you look at different writings and different historical accounts, different opinions and attitudes, the Jews blame the Gentiles for killing that rabbi Jesus. In other words, they try to push it off. Wars have been fought because the Roman Catholic Church, amongst others, believes that the Jews killed Jesus, and they went through wholesale slaughter in Israel over the years during the Crusades and stuff because the Jews are the ones that killed Jesus. They didn't read their Bible to figure out who drove the nails in his hand. But think about this. Who killed Jesus? We did. We're responsible for Jesus dying on the cross. Because why did he die to begin with? He died to pay the price for my sin and for your sin. If anybody's responsible, and it's a hard thing to think through, but I picture myself many a time is that centurion that was actually literally driving those spikes to Jesus' wrist. I was that centurion that did that and mocked him in the process. Because it was my sin that nailed him to the cross, but it was his love that kept him there. Because he could have come off that cross any time. He could have said, you know what, I'm tired of you guys, and you're all gone. We would have all been vaporized in a moment. He goes, ah, do over. But that meant, if he had done that, that we would have no hope. And Jesus died to give each of us hope. Jesus dismissed his spirit. He allowed his spirit to leave. He wasn't actually the victim of anything. In Luke chapter 23, verse 46, Jesus prays towards the end there, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up or dismissed his spirit. His life wasn't taken, it was given, and it's exactly what God intended all along. 
almost 800 years before this actually took place. Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, prophetically, unto us a child is born, unto us what? A son is given. Jesus gave himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent his son to die on the cross. And Jesus was able to do that. Have you thought about that? Can you, in a moment of emotion, in the heat of battle, you ever thought about, could you give your life for somebody else? Could you take a bullet for somebody? In, in all honesty, some of us might just outright say, no way, Jose, I'm out of here, you know. And some of us in a moment of uh, zeal or passion or the heat of battle might jump on a hand grenade, might take the bullet, might jump in the way. You can't guarantee it, though. It's very hard. But if you had, say, 10 years to think about it, or six weeks or a week to think about it, would you? That's a pretty tough one. Jesus had all of eternity before we existed to think about that, that one day I'm going to die for you and you and you and you. He planned it out ahead of time. It's part of his plan from the beginning. He would sacrifice himself. And then God the Father called him to it. And then because it was God's will, God enabled him to do it. God's commandments to us are his enablements to do the very same thing that he's telling us to do. And Jesus lived that. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And Jesus was always absolutely 100% obedient to the word of the Father, to the word of God. And I pray that by his spirit, he would help us to be obedient as well. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for your provision to us. We thank you, Father, that you've you've made the gospel so clear, so easy. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight that has not committed their ways to you, that has not chosen life, chosen you, that, Lord, you would put it in their hearts to do just that. So draw us all to yourself, Lord, and may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm here to find you. Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, expounding upon Chapter 10 in the Gospel of John. Please join us again next time as we continue our study through the book of John and the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you have been blessed and would like to invite you to join us in person. We meet at 450 Richmond Road, Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30, Wednesday evenings at 7, and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, you can call the church office at 530-257-4833 or write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. For more information or to stream all of our broadcasts, you can go to www.ccsusanville.com. Until we meet again, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus be upon you. Amen.